it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Finally, step-by-step premium investment guidance for beginners. Led by... Andrew Sather, and Dave Ahern, to decode industry jargon, silence crippling confusion, and help you overcome emotions by looking at the numbers. Your path to financial freedom starts now. All right, folks, well, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. I'm Dave Ahern. And Andrew Sather is here with us as well. Welcome to episode 41. Tonight, we're going to talk to Brad Conway, who's coming all the way from merry old England. Brad is a newer investor, and he's got some great questions for us tonight. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Andrew and Brad. A special note, I had some audio difficulties with my speaking tonight. Uh, My computer was not working, so I had to use my phone. So the audio quality for me will not be so great. So I apologize for that in advance. Thank you for your patience, and I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Excellent. Yeah, thanks, Dave. So the first question um, that I want to ask is around stop gaps. And, uh, I mean, I've listened to all your podcasts, and you talk about, I believe you said it's 25% less of the value that you, you bought in out of the stock. Um, what I want to know is when, when that gets triggered, um, are you instantly just selling, or do you do a little bit of digging around? What's the reasons behind that? So this is a very personal depending on how people want to utilize trailing stops. I've talked on the podcast in the past about how I split my portfolio into two. So I have the part of the portfolio that's strictly with trailing stops. And then the part that is more of like what you're talking about, where if something goes wrong, I'm going to dig into it deeper, look to see if if the stock price that's fallen is really because of bad fundamentals, bad company financials, or if it's, just because the the crowd's kind of lost their mind in a sense where they, they, they've had pessimism, but but you know that from a fundamental standpoint, it's just temporary and that the company will be able to recover over the long-term. Long-term health of the company mm-hmm. is not compromised. Uh, when I So when I do trailing stops, I stick very strictly to those. And that is because I'm making that portfolio I talk about how sometimes it's a little bit more risky in the sense that I'll maybe chase stocks with less of a track record of like growing a dividend, for example. Um, maybe some less okay. stability. I'll, I'll get more of more of the margin part of margin of safety, but always within the context of having a good balance sheet, having low debt. So because that's kind of the parameters of those stocks that I'm picking then I'm super strict to the trailing stop. It's it's once the end of day closes at 25% loss or greater, then I'm selling that next business day. Other people can kind of look at trailing stops in a different way. You can approach trailing stops differently. If you're, let's say, like another way that I could see somebody doing it that would actually work out really well would be to do trailing stops and be flexible on the upside and not the downside. So what I mean by that is let's say a stock just went straight down 25% when you bought it. Don't, you know, the, you, that trailing stop is there to, to protect your downside. So don't let that, like, like don't debate it at all. Just follow the trailing stop at that point. But let's say your stock went up 50% and then lost 25%. Maybe at that point you want to say, okay, well, I'm already up on the position. 
I don't have to necessarily be as strict on protecting my downside because the stock's already made such a great profit and then kind of dig in from there and see, okay, do I see this as just a, 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 a short obstacle that I will eventually overcome and the, the, the company will eventually overcome? And so it turns out I was right with the pick and maybe I'm going to ride it out longer. That's maybe the scenario that I would see of maybe being flexible on using the trailing stops. No matter which policy you go with, I'll tell you right now, you're going to have times where the trailing stop worked out for you really well and times when it doesn't. So I'll just say, keep that in mind that don't get caught up in maybe feel like you're missing out or regretting that you made the wrong decision. Just understand that's part of the game. And understand that the trailing stop is there to limit your downside. I also like how it gives you an exit point because it's really hard to say. It's it's really easy to say, oh, you know, I'll just sell at the top. In practice and in actuality, it's it's almost impossible. So it's nice to have a system that will tell you that you're gonna basically collect these profits. It's it's cool to see a stock that goes up, uh, let's say, seventy five percent. And you know that no matter what the stock does tomorrow, I'm going to gain at least 50% because I have totally, I have a 25% trailing stop attached to that. Uh, mentally, that's really cool. It prevents you from, from kind of overanalyzing and, and getting really caught up on the actual results. Um, so that's really nice. But I can also see ways where you can be flexible with the trailing stop on the profit side to really maybe maximize those gains even further. Um, especially if I, I would say even more so if, if you're doing a stock that's already paid you great dividends and, and you've been able to reinvest those dividends and, and you have like a sizable portfolio, uh, not portfolio, but a sizable like position size on that stock. I can see where maybe you'd be more hesitant to be so strict with the trailing stop. But for my own purposes, again, that's why when I do the dividend fortresses, those don't have a trailing stop at all. So I have complete flexibility in the sense that I'm going to ride these things out through bear markets. Uh, and that's how much confidence I have in these companies. Yeah, great. So you're sort of like, it's assessing the risk, isn't it? I suppose that that's what it sounds to be. So if you've already made a good amount on it, then I suppose there's less risk in losing that 25% than there is if you've just bought in and then lost 25%. That was, that was a really good answer. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. And I mean, you don't want to have like a stock because it, you will get, you will have some that are just wrong. Like nobody hits a hundred percent. Right. So it, it would be tragic to be flexible on the downside and be like, well, you know, I really think the stock's going to go higher and to see it go from 25 to 50 to minus 75%. I, it kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. One thing I'd like to add to that is. One of the biggest mistakes that beginners make is to not sell a losing position. And, you know, as Andrew has talked about before in the past, if you don't get out of the position and it drops down to almost nothing or the company goes bankrupt, you lose all your money. And to try to gain that back is just it's almost impossible. So having a trailing stop and being very firm on, on that percentage, whatever percentage it is that you set, will help alleviate some of that loss you know, through the, the long term. And yes, it sucks to lose 25% on an investment, but like Andrew said, we're not going to, we're not going to bat a hundred every single time. And so no. have, having that will help from time to time. Excellent. Thank you. Shall I come over to the next one. Absolutely. Excellent. Yep. So the next one's around, um, so I'm over here in the UK, I've been running stock screeners um, on your advice and sort of been setting my levels around, uh, some of the stuff that's advised in an in intelligent investor and some stuff I've heard you say, so a PE of 20 to 25, um, sorry, less than 25, uh, price to book of around somewhere two or three-ish, um, debt to equity below zero and obviously above one, sorry, and then um, any sort of dividend yield. And I've really struggled with anything coming in. I think uh, last time I ran it, I got about seven companies within the, uh, the filter in the whole of the UK and um uh, five of them, or a high percentage of them, were basically like venture capital companies who were invested in small, really small businesses, which isn't where I really want to be. So I suppose the question is, um, if that's the case, do you maybe loosen some of those filters? Or is it maybe the case of this is really not the best time to be buying, maybe hold out a bit longer? Love the question. 
definitely shows you're having progress and you're understanding and you're, you're, you're running into this problem. And that's a good problem to have because it means you're doing it right. So I've definitely seen times like pretty much. So I've been in the market for three years in the sense of having the e-leather and the real money portfolio. I've been buying stocks for longer than that, but I've definitely seen running these screeners as, as I talk about in, in the free ebook and having like a small group of stocks. A lot of times you'll see, depending on like, depending on what parameters you use. So I, I like to play around with them a little bit. There's a ratio called the current ratio, which, which will tell you basically having a high enough current ratio will filter out companies that tend to be really highly leveraged. Um, but might, might not show a high debt to equity. So I know this is getting kind of technical and I apologize for people who maybe aren't this far ahead, but I've seen a lot of insurance companies, for example, come up on the screen. I've seen a lot of banks come up on a lot of these type of screens. What you want to do is, is find metrics kind of like the current ratio, which filters a lot of those out. Um, another thing to do, I do this a lot because I like to, I like to filter on price to cash. So that can be problematic depending on what screener you use. And I'll tell you why. The screener I use is, is called Finviz. And so they have the option to filter under price to cash. So they'll let you go price to cash under five, under six, under seven, all the way up to under 10. But then there's no option to go like under 20 because I'd still like a company that had a price to cash of let's say 11 or 15. So since there's no like middle ground option to do that, I actually a lot of the times will just leave that one open and then let the screener run. And then I'll usually get maybe 20 to 30 stocks rather than like five or six. And then from there, kind of do a double check and be like, okay, is this P is this price to cash? Not ridiculous. And as long as it's not, then I'm okay. Um, you talked about your screener and six all in the same industry. That's obviously a problem. I don't know. The, it might be the price to book. How, do you remember how low you were filtering price to book for? I think I started at two, and then I think I put it up. To, I put it up to about three. Okay. Um, I did get a couple of companies in there that uh, were in different industries at that point. Okay, so I tend to do under three or even under four. Um, sometimes you can get some that are just above three that that are nice. PE, I'm always doing it under thirty. Um, under twenty five is is really ideal, but. 26, 27, 28, that's not like a, necessarily a game breaker. Mm-hmm. So price to earnings, price to book, those two are definitely, you don't want to go any higher than like under 30 or like under four. Like I wouldn't say anything above four would be good. I, I definitely wouldn't. The debt to equity, that one can be very tricky because the way that that ratio is calculated, actually it, it really varies depending on who you talk to. And which screener you use. So I know the screener I use, again, it's Finviz. They calculate it based off of long-term debt divided by equity. So it actually doesn't... It's not conservative enough for what I want. So it might actually show me companies that don't have the, the asset liability mix that I really want to see. Other than that, you know, I'm trying to think... I, I don't think the UK market's really that much overvalued than the US market. So I'm thinking there has to be something else that we can play with to get you a bigger group of stocks to choose from. Do you do you remember any other parameters that you were it, it was just the, so it was the debt to equity, price to book, price to earnings, and it was anything that's paying a dividend um, uh, based on some of the stuff that you've been saying that I've read, that was sort of what I wanted to be looking for but maybe it's the stock screen i'm using that might be something i need to to look into um yeah look into that too because i know mine will show at least when when nothing's there it's like five thousand stocks so you, yeah if, if it's only showing you like the top 500 even then that's like you're missing out on 90 percent of potential stocks that are out there but yeah those are some of the things i would definitely think of uh, price earnings, price to book are definitely probably the strictest ones you want to be on debt to equity is kind of uh, 
can be weird, so maybe that's something you you filter for on your own. Price to sales, that, price to cash. This, sorry. So, sorry, and sorry to interrupt. Um, the the debt to equity is that something that you base maybe on the industry rather than necessarily it has to be one. Because obviously you've got some industries that have a lot more debt than others. Yes and no. So I've definitely bought companies where the debt to equity might be like around two. As far as you know, and and keep in mind, this isn't like a a common viewpoint. This is one of the things that kind of differentiates me, and for better or for worse, it's it's kind of going to be the hill I die on. But I prefer because I'm so debt averse. I prefer to even ignore companies like banks, who their whole business model depends on taking in liabilities, which at the end of the day is is the way I look at debt. When I calculate debt to equity, I'm looking at the whole picture and all of their liabilities. If you think about like a, a consumer bank, how do they make money? How do they build assets? They attract customers. The customers come in, they deposit money into their checking account. So now the, the bank has that money. But whatever they deposited added, adds a liability to the bank because they still owe that money to the customer and the customer can withdraw it whenever they want. So because that is their principal business model, um, they almost always have so many more liabilities than, than regular businesses. Um, I think it's, I remember it being somewhere to the scale of like 10 to one. So when you're looking at a bank, you think that you kind of, you kind of want to think of it as compared to a normal company, they're 10 times more leveraged because that's just the way their business model is. Now I'm not at all trying to say that every single bank with a debt to equity of 10 is going to go bankrupt. Obviously that's not the case. And obviously there's plenty of companies and businesses that do run and, and do very well with, with higher debt loads. I'm just in the camp where, I don't want to put on that much risk and because I'm a very conservative stock picker, that's what I tend to do. Now that's not to say that I don't, I automatically don't get any exposure to, to the, the financial sector. There's insurance companies and a lot of those have similar debt to equity ratios as the banks, but I, I've, I'll tell you now, I've, I've picked up insurance, an insurance stock in the past that did really well for me. And, and I still had that debt to equity kind of, uh, that debt to equity range that I'm always shooting for. Also, I have a dividend fortress right now that is in the asset, asset management space. So they, they are in an industry that tends to take on a lot of debt as well, but they have a great balance sheet and I've definitely loaded up on that company because they have a lot of cash. They have a great balance sheet. They were very, very lowly priced when I bought it and pretty undervalued. So there's these kind of diamonds in the rough that you can find and still get exposure to the, to the finance industry without having to necessarily buy these stocks that have debt to equities in the tens or higher. Yes, it's going to differ on industry, but a lot of times, even in industries where companies tend to run higher debt levels, there will be exceptions to the rule where there'll be companies who are kind of more, I don't know if you want to say like old fashioned or traditional, or even if just the word conservative is the right way to put it, but there will be companies in these particular industries that have those kind of low debt levels and still do very well. Uh, one of the right now, this is currently the best position I have in my e-letter. It's, I believe it's it crossover 200%. I don't know if it's still there. Um, I'm going to be checking on the portfolio again at the end of the month, but actually that was a technology company. And as I think a lot of us know, the technology industry tends to really carry a lot of high debt as well. They kind of think of themselves as special because, you know, they don't need the, the factories and, and the, the big assets that these traditional companies needed. A lot of it's maybe in the cloud or, or due to like IP. But there's still, you know, it, it's in a space that where there's companies that are, 
really leveraging themselves and, and acquiring other companies, swallowing up the small fish and growing in that way, basically growing from debt being thrown in the fire and just fueling. That's how they're fueling their growth. But there's other companies that just don't do that. And so that's why I've seen it happen and I've, I've been able to pick up stocks like that. And that's why I continue to do to, to kind of approach it in that way. Sure. I'm missing out on a lot and sure it's, it's kind of a lot more work and a lot more filtering. But at the end of the day, um, it gives me that peace of mind. And I think there's still fantastic opportunities in getting stocks that are not as leveraged as their peers. Great. Thanks, Andrew. Your, your tagline at the end of your episodes is margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. I was hoping you could both elaborate on that. So obviously, if I understand the margin of safety to be the difference of the market price and the intrinsic value of the company, do you mean by... The emphasis on safety is it don't worry so much about how far it is below more the actual intrinsics of the company that it's a good company as Warren Buffett says or is it it has to be quite a bit below the in the market value has to be quite a bit below the intrinsic value you actually hit the nail on the head um it's funny because you know we've, we've taken this this term margin of safety that's really like kind of a central theme of value investing <laughs> and kind of split it and, and defined it in a, in a better way. There's, there are both ways to reduce your risk. When I say margin of safety with emphasis on the safety, that kind of goes back to what I was talking about just a couple minutes ago with, with low debt to equity, very conservative balance sheet and low leverage. Um, when a lot of value investors talk about margin of safety, they'll talk about how cheap the stock is compared to maybe how many assets they have or how much cash flow they generate, basically being undervalued. And so there's there's a lot of wisdom in, in kind of going in both directions. And obviously, if you can get both, then why not have your cake and eat it too? I think that's it's, it's, it's something to definitely capitalize on, but understand that it's just not going to... It's not feasible to see that all of the time. So margin of safety with the emphasis on the safety. Um, I basically talking about having a good balance sheet and also avoiding the bankruptcies. So I talk about this all throughout the value trap indicator book. What are the characteristics of bankruptcies? What did a lot of them, what did their financial statements do and how did th- those trends kind of materialize in the years leading up to their bankruptcy? Use those lessons and then combine it with everything else. Make sure that it doesn't look like the companies that look bankrupt. Make sure you're not trying to catch a falling knife. Make sure you're not buying into stocks just because they are hated because a lot of times there can be good reasons for why they're hated and why they're dropping. And also, obviously, go for the stocks that don't have a lot of debt. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. 
After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. And I, w- I would agree with that. You know, the, the big part of what we do as value investors is we try to find out what the intrinsic value is versus what the stock market is pricing it at. And the bigger the gap that there is, then the obviously the more the larger the margin of safety you're going to be looking for. Uh, I remember reading early on that Warren Buffett insisted on a 50% margin of safety when he first started got got started. And depending on where the market is, that is a feasible number to look for. In today's market, that may be a lot harder to find. To, to, as Andrew was saying, you know, to find a hated company that is actually not hated for a good reason, you know, for whatever reason it's fallen out of favor and having a large margin of safety like that can be a challenge in the market as, as it is today because it is so overheated. And so finding that bigger difference is going to be kind of the, for me, the way I look at it, it's a hedge against me making a mistake in my calculations. It's a hedge against me, you know, misreading what I'm looking for in the company when I'm reading the 10K and looking at the management. It's another way of hedging against the confirmation bias or any other bias that I may be buying into because I've fallen in love with this company and I want to buy it and I'm finding reasons to buy it. So the larger the margin of safety or the hedge that I have against that, the better I'm going to be and the easier it is going to be for me to sleep at night because if I've made a mistake, I'm not going to lose a large portion of my money because I was being irrational or making a bad choice. And I think, you know, for me with the safety part of it, that's really where it comes into is, is that it's a hedge against, you know, all those factors that go into us making a decision to buy a company. It's really no different than buying a toothbrush. It's just, there's a whole lot more money involved when we're buying company A versus a toothbrush. So margin of safety on a toothbrush, you know, nobody gets too disappointed if the Brussels aren't the greatest. But if you buy a company and you lose all your money because you missed a detail or you made a bad calculation on your intrinsic value, then that can really hurt you. And when you talk about making a calculation on intrinsic value, there's no one magical way to calculate that. So there is a chance that even the way that you're calculating intrinsic value for that specific company isn't applicable at this particular time. There's just so many unknowns that having that margin of safety and having that cushion, like, like you said, Dave, with, with how Buffett kind of explained it, it really, it lowers your chances of one of those unknowns. And one of the things that are maybe really outside of your control from affecting you in too negative of a fashion to the point where you're losing a lot of money. Exactly. And with the, with the calculation part of it, you know, whether you do a discounted cash flow, whether you do the Ben Graham formula, whether you do a dividend discount model, whatever formula or model that you use, any of those numbers that you, a lot of those numbers that you're going to be pulling into that are going to be guesstimates. So they're going to be, you know, growth that you're going to base on, estimates that you may get from either calculations you do yourself or from other numbers that you may pull from somebody else's work. And so, you know, there's never going to be a finite two plus two equals four. There's always going to be some, a little bit of uncertainty into it. And that's where having a margin of safety could be so critical to what you're trying to do. And, 
you know, the other thing about, you know, working with intrinsic value and a margin of safety is you don't have to buy a stock every single day. You know, you can be patient. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk a lot about in their meetings and their writings is patience, being patient, finding something that you want and then going really big into that. And that's a big reason why they've been so successful is because they've been patient. And I think that's one of the things that we always need to remember is that we just need to be patient and look for what we want. You know, in baseball terminology, to you, know, you look for your pitch and then, you, then once you get it, you really take a whack at it. Hey, you, what's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's free ebook at stockmarketpdf.com. You won't regret it. Yeah, great. That, thanks for that. Um, does market capitalization uh, come into sort of helping you find that margin of safety as well? I mean, I know a lot of the companies that I've found on stock screen is a really low market capitalization. And even when you dig a bit more, you'll see, oh, they've actually got a good balance sheet. They seem to be doing well for a few years. But uh, maybe would you stay away from those companies um, because they are so low in their capitalization? So low, like in the sense that maybe they're too small? Yeah. Yeah, I a hundred percent. I, that's the thing. It's like, uh, we talk about the small fish, big fish a lot of times, and it's a way to kind of put a metaphor into the different stocks in the market. And when you're just so small, it's, you're kind of subject to what the big fish are doing and you could just find yourself swimming along and doing great and then getting swallowed up because a whale happened to breathe next to you. So I think that's what can happen with a lot of these really, really small companies. And you see it a lot. I always try to do at least $2 billion or more. Uh, It starts to be the point where kind of Wall Street starts to pay attention. Obviously, once a stock maybe reaches the S&P 500 or they get classified as a mid cap or a large cap, or maybe even have like 10 billion in market cap, then a lot, you, you tend to see a lot of analysts kind of coming in and, and, and giving these stocks attention. But up until that point, there, there, there is that, that risk of, like I said, you can, a lot of things can go wrong and, and they don't have maybe as strong of a, a foundation and as much of a stranglehold on even just the market itself. You have to think businesses market to consumers, whether that's the everyday customer or whether that's another business. And so there, there's markets for these, for these places and these products and these services. And if you're just nibbling on a small piece of the pie and you don't have the same competitive advantage that a bigger company might have, then you're really at the whims of the market and, and you don't have as much. I think it's a good way to put it, actually, the way you're kind of Make you're you're adding it to this discussion of margin of safety, and and it's a very critical point. It it's 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 having not only a good financial situation, but having having like a having having a moat and and having that cushion there where where there's really just more of a stability and a safeness than 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 what you'll see if you're not one of these companies and businesses. So. To me, the sweet spot's really like two billion to ten billion, sometimes twenty billion. I like that in the sense of where they're they're very secure and they have a lot of assets and and they have generally they they tend to have a good piece of market share, whatever market they're competing in. But they also have a very bright future and could go for decades and compound money for. A very very long time and and at a very great rate, whereas I think it's safe to say you know even though Apple's a, a fantastic company and and I, I mean I I could see them going to a trillion in market cap, but I think it's safe to say that we'll never see them ten bag. I, I don't see them going to ten trillion at least, uh, you know at least for twenty thirty forty years something like that. They're not gonna it's it's gonna be a lot harder for a company like that to 10 bag and and to grow to have a 10x return than it would be a company that's at 2 billion just because there's only so many people in this world and and so much money in this world and and so there is a cap to the growth so again you want to find that sweet spot of not too small not too big 
And I, I think there's a lot of opportunity when you're doing that. Excellent. So I guess what you're saying then is you want them to sort of have that foundation in place so they can deal with adversity in the market or within the industry. Because obviously if they're a bit smaller, uh, they're sort of going to be the first ones maybe to fail because they haven't got that foundation there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, they're, when you talk about stocks that are under a hundred million in market cap, especially mm-hmm. just the fact that some, some big investor, uh, like a Buffett or a Soros could literally buy a competitor and flush it with cash and then completely squeeze out the other company. Whereas it might be harder for them to do that, uh, with a company that's a little bit more established and not, not to say Buffett or Soros. I'm just using them as examples. They don't do stuff like that as far as, at least in the public eye that we're aware of, but there, you know, the smaller you go, the, the more of a chance of those type of things happening, like hostile takeovers and, and just kind of ugly things that you won't see at a higher level. Another thing people want to keep this in mind too. We, we've definitely seen this in the past. It's been written about a lot and it always gets brushed under the rug until it's kind of too late and it becomes a scandal again, but you'll have investment newsletters, um, that, that focus on penny stocks. And so penny stocks is, is really what we're talking about when we're talking about sub 100 million market cap companies. And what they'll do is, is they'll, they'll, they'll build up a subscriber base of, of these investors. And what they'll do is they'll buy up a bunch of shares of a company and they call it a pump and dump. So they'll buy up a bunch of shares, then send out this newsletter and call it some special secret access where you know, they have this innovation, the stock's going to go up like crazy and you got to buy in, you got to buy in. And so the, there becomes a hype. And because the stock is so small, um, it doesn't need that many people and that much capital to really push it higher like that. So what these guys will do is they'll pump it, they'll buy at the beginning, pump it, and then they'll they'll sell it at the end. And then it, it just creates chaos because then once, once the pump and dump gets revealed, um, people the market realizes oh wow the stock didn't go up because of anything that happened with the company it, it was just a fad or it was just a hype or it was because of this pump and dump fraud and then you'll just see the stock price completely collapse and so that's another thing to kind of keep in mind when when uh, as a reason to keep away from those really really small cap stocks excellent thanks for that um and sort of my final question then is around what have you learned from, obviously, the stocks you've picked in the ELATS? What have you learned from the stocks that, that haven't gone so well? Is there any sort of trends that you've spotted, or, or, or is it hard to spot that? Yeah, I love it. This is such a fantastic question because it's so easy to talk about the winners and, and to just brush the losers away, but the only way any investor will really become better and create more skills and become stronger at what they do is to examine what went wrong and, and what you can do in the future to kind of learn from that. So I'll tell you because these are stocks that I've already sold out of. And so current e-leather subscribers probably aren't invested and we're not looking at these right now currently to buy into. I'll tell you, I bought foot locker at $67 and, and a penny. Um, literally, I don't know if this was, I guess this was Friday because I'm, I'm on Google finance right now and they're showing, uh, they were up 28% in a day, <laughs> which I, I saw the headline. I was like, Oh man, really? <laughs> um, but the thing about that stock, it, it was one of those situations where I, I'm, I definitely got it wrong because I bought it, like I said, around 67. It's now trading around 40. So, and, and that's after the stock went up 28%. That This was just one of the stocks that I just got completely wrong. The trend that I saw is I tried to pick up a lot of retail stocks and clearly the bottom hadn't really formed on some of them. I'll give you another one I did. I did Best Buy at 34.65. Unfortunately, it's now at 55.83. So it's up you know, twenty thirty dollars, but I had the trailing stop and I stopped out with like a twenty three percent loss. So there's there's a there's another situation where you might get the story right, but because you buy at the wrong time, <laughs> I wasn't able to pick the bottom quote unquote. So it still had further the fall, and then once it was done falling, once I guess once I decided to sell, then they're like, okay, we can go back up now. 
And so that's what happened. And, and I missed out. And I had one other one. There was Tiffany, uh, the, the jewelry company that makes the, the, those blue boxes that chicas just love to buy or receive as gifts. Uh, I bought that one at seventy nine ninety four, and it's now at ninety four. But again, I had stopped out from buying into the stock too early. So while it might sound like, oh man, well you should have just these trailing stops suck because you lost twenty twenty five percent, and you know you were right about these stocks. Well, that was the case with Best Buy and Tiffany, but with Foot Locker, remember I stopped out. 25% below like almost 70. So it continued to fall. I don't I don't know if, what the exact stop point was, but there was maybe around 55 that, that I got out and then it continued to drop all the way down to like 30. So that's a situation where I was like, you know what? Sure, I lost out on Tiffany. Sure, I lost out on Best Buy, but I got saved from losing a ton of money on Foot Locker and I'm okay with that. So kind of back to what you were talking about in the beginning about the trailing stop and, and how the how they use that into your strategy is it's okay to have these stocks that go that might go higher after you sell out or continue to go lower it, it's just what's going to happen and so i kind of learned that i like these trailing stops and i like being strict to these trailing stops because even though footlocker had all sorts of great valuations. I mean, it still has a strong balance sheet. It's just, I maybe underestimated the retail bloodbath that was going to happen. And, and so I, I definitely bought into these retail stocks a little bit too early. So, I mean, there's three right there that I lost out on. I've had three, and I've talked about on the podcast before, I've had in the same time period, there, there's been other stocks that have gained 50%. Um, 60% and, and some percentages in between there as well. So what's nice is I have these trailing stops up to this date. I haven't lost anything more than 25%. And, um, I've been seeing a good mix of winners and losers. So it, it's been, it's been nice. And these been, these have been some good lessons. I did go into oil and gas a couple issues ago. So. I fear that the same mistake I made with retail I'm going to make with oil and gas because it's clear that there hasn't been a bottom yet. Of course, it's never clear that the bottom was hit until after the bottom's already gone, right? So you just kind of don't know what those, with these type of things. But I think moving forward, I'm going to kind of try to call these bottoms less. And while I'm still going to definitely buy companies like this who are so heavily discounted because they are in industries that are really hated by wall street i might limit it a little bit more moving forward and maybe instead of doing like three stocks in retail for example i might just do one or or something like that you know obviously these were spread out over months but it's just something to keep in mind maybe like for the oil and gas thing that i just did i I just couldn't help myself from pulling the trigger and they're just such great valuations but if another one like that that has a similar kind of characteristic pops up maybe i'll be more likely to kind of shun it and just be like, you know what, there, there's other opportunities elsewhere. I don't have to be this hero who's calling the bottom in every industry. And, you know, to, to throw my two cents in on that, I, when I first started uh, investing, I was following the advice of another newsletter and I didn't do any research. I didn't, I didn't really didn't know what I was doing. I just know I wanted to invest in some companies. And so I got caught up in the glitz and the glam of what this person was advertising and talking about and touting, you know, his success record. And so the two companies that I bought, uh, one was Westport Innovations, which was a company that basically builds catalytic converters for diesel engines using um, natural gas. And it, I bought into it at, I believe it was like $5. And it jumped up to $14 a few months after I bought it. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. But then it started to just started to go down and down and down and down. And now I believe it's around a dollar or so. I never, I didn't sell out of it until I got down to about a dollar fifty or so. And so because I kept thinking it would come back, it would come back, it never did. And it was just a lesson I learned along with another one that I bought, which was called Sierra Wireless. 
and it was an internet of things company where they basically, you know, they connected different devices to your home and things of that nature. And I bought into that company at $20 a share and it jumped up to $48 a share about three months after that. And again, I thought, you know, Hey, this investing thing is easy. This is awesome. Why have I been doing this longer? And then it started to fall and fall and fall and fall. And now I believe it's around $15. I got out around 16 bucks. And so I didn't lose my shirt on that one so much, but if I'd had a trailing stop on either one of them, you know, the first one, I, I, both of them, I would have made money on because it would have triggered after it had gotten to the top. And so I guess the thing I learned from both of those examples was I needed to do more research. I needed to know what I was doing. And that's really what led me to value investing and Andrew and Warren Buffett and, you know, Peter Lynch and Monish Pabrai and all these guys that I, you know, really look up to and, and have studied that really led me to doing a lot more research and figuring out what intrinsic value was and trying to find a margin of safety and doing my due diligence, reading the 10 Ks, spending time learning about the company as, as opposed to reading a one paragraph, you know, art about the article about the company and then deciding, Oh, I like the color of their logo and buying the company. I mean, that's, that's really as shallow as it was. And, you know, so my it really created a an investment philosophy for me out of the pain of making those mistakes. And, you know, so it's, you know, that to me was really what I learned from losing. And like Andrew said, people don't talk about those because it's not glamorous. And, it, you know, they think it could be embarrassing. But Warren Buffett talks all the time about Dexter Shoes. So that he and, he and Charlie Munger bought into that company and the company ended up going bankrupt. They also bought into a retail company. Uh, they bought into like a mall. I don't remember the name of the company off the top of my head, but it was kind of like a Macy's or Yonkers or something like that. They ended up going bankrupt as well. So, you know, even the great ones make mistakes from time to time. So it's okay to make a mistake, but it, the biggest thing is you got to try to learn from it. Yeah, excellent. Thanks, thanks for those responses. So I guess the sort of lessons from you, Andrew, is when you when these companies are really getting beaten down and beaten down, it's maybe waiting around a bit to, to see where that bottom is. Um, and, and on your side, David, just doing your research a bit more. I suppose that's, they're really good lessons. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming on, Brad. Um, questions were fantastic. I, I always like to say that if one person has a question and they vocalize it, there are 10 more who have the same question and they just haven't gotten around to vocalizing it. So I know there's going to be a lot of people who are, on a similar path and trajectory as you. And, you know, it's encouraging. It's exciting. Um, I've been in doing this investing thing and stock thing for quite a while now. And so it's, it's cool to see these questions that I can remember when I had these questions come up myself. And so it's obviously sometimes you just get things that come up and you won't think of the question until you're actually in there, kind of in the trenches, going through numbers, going through the screeners. And so. <laughs> It's, it's great to be able to answer those um, because it's impossible to really predict any of those things uh, until they come up. So hopefully this has been helpful. Hopefully it kind of becomes another toolkit in a way that, that at the very least inspires you to continue to do your research like Dave said. Um, I know we talked before we got on the air here, Brad, and, and you're talking – you talked about how you, you read Graham and, and a lot of the other guys who are, who are telling you about this more conservative kind of approach to, to picking stocks. And so I think it's fantastic. I, I definitely encourage pursuing that uh, continually and, and continuing to do that. And I think you'll find more and more it's interesting how the more risk averse you are and the more of a focus on the safety, on the margin of safety you are, it, it 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 tends to be the the same type of guys who who are also making a lot of money in the market. So, I mean, look at the Benjamin Graham, look at the Warren Buffett, look at all those type of guys, and and try to emulate them. And obviously, having the skills to be able to understand a trailing stop, master it, use it, uh, learn from the lessons of others. It's all it's all good stuff, and it's it's all going to help you along your journey, and hopefully get you to the goal of financial freedom which is the whole point of this podcast at the end of the day. So 
it, it was a great conversation and good to have you on. I know it's provided a ton of value for the people who are listening and trying to achieve the same things as well. No, excellent. Thank you both. And uh, th- thanks for all information. And as an avid listener to the podcast, just want to say, you know, great thanks for all the information you've given me. It's been invaluable personally. So thank you. Right on. You're welcome. It's our, it's our pleasure. We, we enjoy doing this and we enjoy talking to the people. And the bottom line is we like helping people. I mean, the more, you know, the more goodwill we can spread out there, the better it is for everybody. Yeah. Excellent. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We will. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us tonight. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Brad. Brad, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And again, I want to apologize for the poor quality of my voice with my technical difficulties. Hopefully it didn't detract too much from the conversation and the great conver- uh, great questions that Andrew was answering from Brad. Brad, again, thank you very much for coming on the show. And, you know, the quality of your questions from a quote unquote beginner was outstanding. And we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And without any further ado, why don't you guys go out and, and find some great intrinsic value, invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety, and have a great week. And we'll talk to you next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.